listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guests are Sarah Byrne and Stephanie Greider of Morin Van Allen. We spoke to them from Charlotte, North Carolina, a city and state that has been in the news a lot lately for a variety of reasons. We discussed their roles, the firm's innovative human trafficking pro bono project, and the intersection of law firm pro bono and diversity and inclusion efforts. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Sarah, Stephanie, welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. We're excited to speak to you both, so let's jump right in. To start, why don't you tell us about your backgrounds and your journeys to Charlotte and Morin Van Allen. Stephanie, why don't you go first? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a non-attorney, um, but I love lawyers. I always like to say that. And my journey started at the American Bar Association, and I started in their government affairs office. I uh, covered uh, all legislative um, interests to the organized bar, and I would write on various topics from judicial pay, judicial security, to equal employment opportunities that were coming through the House and Senate. Um, while I was there, I picked up a, a, a degree in nonprofit management, and then I headed south to Charlotte, um, to the Mecklenburg County Bar, where I served as their first diversity coordinator and helped to sort of stand up that program and, and put some meat around what great work they've already been doing in the bar as a, as a staff person. And I stayed there for about four years, and then I jumped to Morin Van Allen, where um, I started as their diversity and um, community outreach uh, manager, and I've been here for almost five years. That's amazing. I think I Love Lawyers should be a bumper sticker or at the very least <laughs> a t-shirt. I think there's a lot of merch possibilities there. So get 100%. on it, Stephanie. Yeah, get on it. <laughs> okay, Sarah, what about you? Sure. Um, I hail from Massachusetts. I um, went to law school after a very brief career in government up in Massachusetts. After that, I clerked for the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and then I practiced for a short time at a firm in uh, Massachusetts. I was practicing litigation before um, personal reasons. Um, my husband, um, his job brought us down to Charlotte, and I've been with Moore and Van Allen for 11 years now, and I serve as the Ethics and Compliance Counsel here. So thank you for that. So you mentioned, Sarah, that you're the Ethics and Compliance Counsel at the firm. Let's talk a little bit about your roles and how you both spend your time. So what is an Ethics and Compliance Counsel? What do you do? <laughs> yeah. How do you spend your time? I, I get that question at cocktail parties a lot. <laughs> Um, as Ethics and Compliance Counsel, I advise the firm and our attorneys on the rules of professional conduct, which are the, uh, the code of ethics for attorneys, and they vary by state. We have offices in South Carolina and North Carolina, um, so that involves a lot of training of attorneys and responding to inquiries about um, potential matters of ethics. Um, I also assist with client compliance matters. As you may know, um, there is a, a trend in the legal industry of clients more and more um, imposing requirements on law firms um, from anything ranging from data security to confidentiality to the staffing of matters, um, and I um, ensure that compliance for more and Van Allen. And I'm sure when you tell people that at cocktail parties, their first response is, I love lawyers. <laughs> <It just laughs> sounds so riveting. Um, and Stephanie, what about you? 
Sure. So I, as mentioned, manage the diversity, pro bono, and public service efforts here at the firm. I support both our public service committee and our diversity committee. So um, my time is really divided between both of those roles. They do have synergies that we'll talk about in a bit, um, and and it's very exciting. It, my day never looks the same. So that's the, the excitement of what I do, that every day I walk in and something new comes to me, and um, I love the diversity of the role itself. Variety is the spice of life. So. Absolutely. <laughs> I like that, too. So how about a 30,000-foot overview of the firm? You mentioned a little bit about where you have offices and the pro bono program overall. Sure. So we're a full-service firm located in the southeast. We do have three offices in Charlotte, Charleston, and the uh, Research Triangle area. Um, we have about 500 employees total. Uh, Three, just under 300 attorneys. So we are a, a large firm for the Southeast. Um, for, with regards to our pro bono program, we have what we call a project model, and that's been in place for about a decade. Um, a project model simply means that we leverage our volunteer attorneys to lead pro bono areas of practice. So um, when we move into new areas of pro bono, we're really looking for that attorney that has the passion for that area to stand up the project like Sarah. And so when we look to them to uh, gather volunteers, to put together trainings, to really build that pro bono practice. And we do that to make sure that we can funnel cases appropriately through our legal service providers, to make sure that we're really building an expertise in that area, and to make sure that people are really volunteering in areas that they want to volunteer. That said, we do not limit pro bono to our projects. So if uh, something comes in for uh, a disability case, we'll, we'll certainly consider it. If one of our attorneys in the firm might have an area of interest there, we just might not have a project set up. So we try to be as broad as possible, but our projects are just designed to sort of um, streamline, I guess, efforts a bit more and allow our volunteer attorneys to get greater visibility and leadership within the firm. We're going to deep dive into one of your projects, but could you give us okay. some examples of the types of projects that uh, you model? Absolutely. So right now we have a domestic violence project, a housing rights project. Um, we do some work with the self-serve center, which is really pro se representation, but we send um, attorneys down to talk to clients who are having family law issues. Uh, we have a wills project. Uh, we work with Habitat for Humanity, uh, veterans advocacy, human trafficking. Um, we've just dipped our toe into the entrepreneur entrepreneurial space. Um, a guardianship program, and also a partnership with the Council for Children's Rights here in Charlotte. Wonderful. What inspires each of you about your work with the firm's pro bono program? What turns you on? What excites you? Um, I'll take a hack at that. Um, I have always felt called to do pro bono work um, in order to give a voice to those who often don't have one. Um, and that's why one of the reasons I've so enjoyed my work representing victims of human trafficking who truly need an advocate um, in a variety of ways after enduring such a horrific experience. Um, but I've done a lot of pro bono work in several different areas, including domestic violence, landlord-tenant, um, wills, our wills project here, drafting wills for low-income individuals, and representing kids in high-custody disputes. In all of those experiences, um, I, I am hopeful that I, again, have been able to give a voice um, to those who may have lost it um, due to a variety of experiences in their life. And for me, I, I just am so passionate about expanding access to justice and, and, and breaking down those barriers to allow people to 
get quality representation when they might not otherwise have access points to it. Um, I, for the firm, from a firm standpoint, I continue to push on ways that we can make sure we're serving populations that may be unaware or um, just haven't reached access points where they can get really quality representation. I just uh, we're preaching to the choir here, but it can affect every aspect of your life when you don't have someone who's standing by your side, in, in even in civil matters. So um, I think it's so important that we continue to push on um, increasing pro bono legal services across the country. That feeds really nicely into my next question, and that's as leaders of a law firm pro bono program, what are the greatest challenges for you? This is Sarah. Um, I think the greatest challenge is the greatest challenge that, that that every um, everyone has, which is um, having time for the, all the priorities in your life, both the professional and personal priorities. Um, and in the professional context, um, you know, devoting enough time to to um, all the areas that you're, all of your responsibilities at work, um, but also giving the care and attention to each pro bono client that he or she deserves. And for me, I'll take it a little bit broader. Being that we're a law firm in the southeast, we are a little bit different. That we we have wonderful legal service providers, but they're 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 very few here compared to larger markets. So, as we go into new areas of pro bono, we might not always have a legal service provider there who's funneling cases for us. Sarah's project is a great example. Um, she's working with direct service providers, um, um, safe space, safe houses that funnel cases to us. So a challenge for us is figuring out as a law firm, how do we um, put parameters around our pro bono projects that allow us to increase access um, for clients that are in need, but also maintaining um, sort of the administrative side. How do we do case intake as a law firm? What does that look like? What are our cutoff points? Um, The biggest challenge for me overall is learning how to say no. And I hate to say that, but it's so important to actually know how to do that and when to do that and when to do it ethically, too, um, and really outlining our parameters. Um, so that's, that's sort of my biggest challenge. There's so much food for thought in both of those answers. I'd, I'd like to follow up a little bit. One thing that sure. Sarah mentioned, and I think Stephanie echoed, is this, this challenge of time, right? <laughs> we, we don't have endless time, so we have to be smart. We have to prioritize. We have to learn to say no. Um, what's on your wish list? What, if you had more time, do you wish you could be doing that you just don't seem to ever get to? Is, is there anything on your wish list that you wish you could spend time? Um, from a specific client um, perspective, of course. I mean, this goes for our paying and our pro bono clients, but you know, we wish we had more time um, to spend with them, to get uh, get to know them personally. Um, so that is certainly something we all wish for more time. Um, but from more of a um, sort of project long-term goals perspective, um, I would love to see the firm get involved in perhaps some state law lobbying um, in a way that would benefit um, the human trafficking victims that we serve here. And for me, I... Um I, I echo that. I think the firm is, is getting ready to take our pro bono more, a, a little bit more broader, a little bit more national. We've really focused our efforts on um, local service providers. But if we had more time, um, maybe more volunteers, getting to national legal service providers where we haven't really expanded our, our offerings yet. Um, in addition to more time, I'm always looking for more time to say thank you to my volunteers and all the attorneys and paralegals and staff that are doing this great work. And we, we try as hard as we can to, to 
show our appreciation, but I feel like it's never enough. This is such great work, and I wish every day I could spend saying thank you a million times over. That's wonderful and so important, and we all wish we were able to do everything all the time. So those are those are great add-ons. Um, Stephanie, you mentioned something that I was hoping you could shed some light on, and that is the pro bono culture in Charlotte in general, the community. Um, How would you describe the landscape, the players, the 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 pros, the cons? What 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 should people know about what's going on in Charlotte, a city and a state, North Carolina, sort of writ large, that's been on our minds a lot lately in the news for a lot of reasons, <laughs> ranging from natural disasters to yeah, yeah. let's just say human-made disasters, maybe yeah. or controversies. Yeah. We've had a big year here in, in North Carolina and in Charlotte. Yeah, um, I will say this: the pro bono community is very tight knit, and I think we are also thankful for that. There is, it is not competitive. It is not, um, there's no malice. It, we all work together for the common good of increasing access to justice. Um, I, some of the unique uh, aspects of, of our community, I think I touched on, we do have legal service providers here. All legal serv- service providers are, are limited due to funding and capacity, and, and sometimes moving into new areas of pro bono can be limiting. But our law firms and legal departments are always quick to take on new efforts, um, and legal services may not be driving that, and the firms and the departments might be, but everybody works together to get them to where they need to be. In fact, Sarah, uh, you might touch on how we pulled together the, the human tra- trafficking project. We, you know, Moore and Van Allen has sort of led the effort, but other firms have quickly jumped on along with our um, pro bono service uh, providers, and it's been phenomenal. Um, I could not agree with Stephanie more. I have been so um, enlightened and encouraged by the response of, of the entire bar in Mecklenburg County. Um, and, and even further, we often have needs for human trafficking clients in other counties, in other states. Um, and we have had the opportunity of having to make cold calls to attorneys in that area to see if they would be willing to assist. Just yesterday, I um, was talking to a new human trafficking client who um, has a need that's in a, um, an area of law with which, for which we don't have a specialty. And so I made a call to an attorney in town who I do not know um, who does this type of work as part of his paying practice. And I just said, you know, would you be willing to co-counsel? Maybe I could run some questions by you. And he offered to do the case pro bono um, all himself, which is amazing to me that this is, you know, particularly for attorneys when this is their paying practice, that they're willing to do this work. And that's happened a number of times where we've had to reach out for, um, for in order to achieve competence um, to co-counsel and the answer has almost always been yes. We'd be happy to help. That is an inspiring tale and reflects so well on the bar in in Charlotte. Amazing. We're going to circle back and talk a lot more about the human trafficking pro bono project in a minute. But Stephanie, I wanted to talk about your work at the firm. You wear several hats. And one of them is um, involved in the firm's diversity and inclusion efforts. And I, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the relationship and the intersection, either in reality, currently now, or maybe as an ideal that we could work towards, and how diversity and inclusion efforts 
um, relate to pro bono efforts. It's something we think a lot about at PBI, and there seems to be a lot of potential synergies there. And I was curious, as someone who spends a lot of time working in this space, um, <laughs> what, what do you see um, on the one hand with diversity and inclusion and with pro bono on the other? Absolutely. I would say we have two type of synergies here at Morn Van Allen with regards to diversity and pro bono. The first would be a strategic synergy. So that would be we work with um, numerous organizations around racial and ethnic um, inclusion within our community. One is the Community Building Initiative. Um, that's a relationship that's driven by our diversity efforts. But from a pro bono side, we also make sure to lend pro bono services from a nonprofit standpoint, corporate, corporate needs. Um, we produce various videos for the organization, making sure that they're supported so that they can continue to focus on their mission um, and we can pick up the, the legal aspects so that's not a burden to them. Um, the more organic synergies, I would say, is from our client base, just given how diverse our, our clients are within all of our projects. More recently, we're seeing an uptick in LGBT um, needs with uh, regards to domestic violence. Um, we certainly have increased our training around uh, when we get a client from the LGBT community, um, sensitivity. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's a product of our politics, but I don't know what the uptick is attributed to. That said, we're making sure that we're continuing to train our um, domestic violence volunteers on how to sort of inter interact with um, clients from the LGBT community when we see those cases come in. Do you have any sort of what's next where you see all this going, you know, in three years, five years, ten years? With regards to diversity and pro bono? Yeah. What's next, I think, is a giant pause, um, quite frankly. Given what's just happened in our city, we've not had the moment to process it. I know as a firm um, – we want to do more internally with having dialogues and talking about actions we can take. But a lot of us that work in this space, space with regards to diversity and inclusion can't even get to talking about what's next yet because we're still continuing to process. I would think within the next six months we're going to continue to see community conversations and from from those we'll start to put into place what actions need to take either from a legal standpoint or just a, a service standpoint of, about how we get our city back on track and, and be the Charlotte that we know we can be. This is hard stuff and I think that's a great way of of looking at it and making sure that we're all being sort of thoughtful and strategic and knowledgeable and inclusive and understanding right. and tolerant and it's it's a lot so thank you that's very helpful in my mind i'm gone to carolina can't you see the sunshine can't you just feel the moonshine Ain't it just like a friend of mine To hit me from behind Guess I'm gone to Carolina in my mind Karen, So let's pivot and laser focus on Morin Van Allen's Human Trafficking Pro Bono Project. So we've, we've mentioned this quite a bit already, but for people who don't know, Sarah, could you tell us what, what human trafficking is? Sure. Human trafficking is divided into two categories, um, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. 
Um, I'll sort of describe it in a way that's a, a hybrid of federal and state law, um, just for, for ease of your listeners. Um, sex trafficking is inducing someone to engage in commercial sex, either by force, fraud, or coercion, or if that person is a minor under 18 years old. Labor trafficking is subjecting another individual to involuntary servitude, also through force, fraud, or coercion. Um, the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Project here at Moore and Van Allen um, represents victims of both types of trafficking. I think that's really helpful. Sometimes people hear about one or the other, and they're not sure what, what the term really applies to. So, so tell us about the Pro Bono Project. When and why was it started, and, and what's it all about? Back in 2013, um, Stephanie and I and Sally Hentz, um, a paralegal here at the firm, had just gotten talking about um, what we considered a gap in legal services in Charlotte. Um, Charlotte does a wonderful job of supporting victims of domestic violence, particularly providing legal services to those victims, and the three of us have been very involved in that work. And we thought, you know, getting to understand the problem of human trafficking and the significant problem that it is here in Charlotte, we got our heads together and said, why can't we offer the same type of supportive services to victims of human trafficking? Uh, so we sort of put pen to paper and proposed it to the firm leadership, um, and it was it was approved and supportive. And as I often say, uh, my greatest fear was that we would set out to do this and, um, you know, commit firm resources and um, just get generally get the commitment from leadership and that there wouldn't be anybody to help. Um, as you well know, um, <laughs> that has not been the result, and um, I am somewhat reluctant to use this word, but we have been overwhelmed with client requests. Um, to date, we have not um, have had to deny anybody's services. There are some circumstances where we referred out to another pro bono attorney um, at a partner firm. As Stephanie mentioned, this thing has grown so much that we have other firms and attorneys that have um, joined our project as volunteers. Um, but that was, again, we launched officially in early 2014, and to date we've represented victims in over 100 matters. Tell us a little bit about your coalition partners and the other players in the community that you work with and, and how you all work together. Yes, that community partnership is so critical to representing victims of trafficking for a reason that Stephanie already touched on. Um, many communities don't have a, a singular agency that supports victims of human trafficking and acts as that client referral entity to the law firms. Um, you know, for example, our domestic violence pro bono project, we receive all of our cases from one NGO um, that does client screening and intake and, and supports the attorneys here and representing the victims in their seeking of a protective order. But we don't have that for human trafficking. But what we do have is a lot of organizations that support victims of trafficking, that intersect with them, and we have partnered with all of those. So namely, um, probably the, the primary source of referral is law enforcement. Both federal and local law enforcement um, you know, are, of course, in, in, in a great position to identify victims of trafficking and link them to the firm for any necessary legal needs. There also are a number of wonderful, uh, mostly faith-based organizations in, in Charlotte that house 
victims of human trafficking and provide them with other services such as medical care, counseling, empowerment services, job search services, and we've developed relationships with them and from them we receive client referrals as well. So developing those strong relationships with the with the community partners, those institutions that will intersect with a victim before a law firm would um, is so, so important for the effective representation of victims. And how do you deploy your pro bono lawyers? What, what are they doing? So when we set out to do this, we didn't, I confess, we didn't quite know what the needs would be, but our, our mission from the beginning was to meet whatever the legal needs of the victims were to the extent that we had the competence and expertise to do that. So we really, Stephanie and I, let the project and Sally shape itself. Um, I had some predictions about where it would go, um, and some have come to fruition and some haven't. Um, one one area where I was off in anticipating was I thought we would have a lot of victims have um, prostitution charges for um, the circumstances of them being trafficked and that they would ask Warren Van Allen to help them expunge those records. Um, many states have vacator or expunction statutes that allow for a conviction of prostitution to be erased from the record upon a showing that they were in fact a victim of human trafficking and not a perpetrator at all. Um, we have not had one client come with a prostitution charge or conviction, and I tell you that, I smile as I tell you that because that's good news. That means that law enforcement and the court systems are getting so much better about identifying someone who is a victim of trafficking and not a perpetrator, him or herself. Um, so that's, that's quite an evolution over the last 10 years. Um, other than that, um, we, we did anticipate that victims of trafficking would come to us with other criminal records that were due to the conduct um, they were forced to engage in while being trafficked, and that's probably the greatest area of need from our clients is They'll come and say that they have a, um, a charge related to um, possession of firearms or breaking and entering or possession of an illegal substance um, that they were forced to engage in, again, um, due to the experience of being trafficked. So we assist them in, in doing some expunction or vacator analysis to see if they're eligible to have that record removed. Um, the other area of service um, that we did predict and, and has been an area of tremendous request has been um, victim witness advocacy in the investigation and the prosecution of the trafficker. Um, we've had some wonderful experiences with victims who come from other parts of the country and are living in a safe home in Charlotte who once they are you know, on their way to recovery and feeling comfortable and empowered come to us and say that they would like to prompt an investigation of the trafficker. Um, and we have facilitated that process by linking them up with law enforcement and sitting with them during interviews and, and helping them understand what that process looks like and what it means to be a victim witness um, in a matter. Um, there's a variety of other areas where we've um, been asked for assistance, custody matters, name change petitions. A lot of victims of human trafficking um, as part of their recovery would like to seek anonymity and change their name. That is a fairly easy area for an attorney to, to assist. We've been happy to do that, um, of course, which many lawyers are aware of, but um, immigration, helping victims um, receive T visas so they can remain in the country if they're foreign born. Um, we've had a couple of other requests for um, emancipation um, analysis, uh, appeal of disability claims, and domestic violence protective orders. So it really runs the gamut, which is, again, why we're so thrilled that we got involved in this space, because um, there clearly was a gap that needed to be filled. 
What types of training and support do you provide to the pro bono lawyers, most of whom I think don't have a lot of background in these areas? Yes, that's, um, that is one of the things that makes this pro bono opportunity so unique. Um, well, like, like most um, pro bono projects, um, the area of assistance is usually not um, that of the attorney's expertise, so it does share that similarity. Um, but again, because these matters really run the gamut, and many victims come with several legal needs. So that's sort of how it's, it's distinct from, from other pro bono projects. You know, for example, the wills project, you know, you're going to be drafting a will mm-hmm. um, for an eligible individual. Um, here you will, you will get a call from a victim who says, I, I think I need a lawyer, but I don't know for what and why. And you'll sit down and it requires a lot of issue spotting um, to ultimately discern what his or her need will be, but also what they want assistance with. You can identify a lot of legal needs, um, but we really need to glean the, the desires of the client of, of, with which they would like your help. That raises a question for me. If you have a client who comes and as you peel away the layers of the onion <laughs> or issue spot, they have a lot of different needs. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, you know, housing and a name change and, uh, you know, a family law issue. and You know, who knows, um, an immigration thing. Would they be assigned one lawyer or a team because people have different areas of specialty that they've developed? How, how do you staff things when people have really diverse needs? That's a great question. Well, we've, we've done both. Um, I would say most of the time if they have two or more legal needs, that will be a team of attorneys. And I'm, I still feel like we're new at this, but um, I, I feel like we've now developed you know, such a, a history with our caseload that we do have attorneys here who have developed expertise. Um, we have you know, a pater- an attorney who's done a number of name changes. So that's sort of our go-to for name changes. And, and she serves as um, you know, sort of co-counsel for other attorneys at the firm who want to get involved in that area. Um, same thing for custody matters um, for victims of trafficking who have that need. So it usually is a team structure, um, and that seems to have worked out very well. I will say, if I can chime in there, uh, given that you don't know where a trafficking case is going to go, can be sometimes a deterrent to volunteers when they talk when you talk about pro bono to, to them you know I, this could evolve into x y and z matters and for sarah's project that that is not a deterrent we continue to have people still excited to get involved continue to volunteer um, regardless of how long the matter may take and i just love that sarah supports her volunteers and her team is just very well structured to make sure that the attorneys are well supported regardless of what comes at them um, from the client. Even We've had surprises, we've had um, the unknown, and, and sometimes that can limit involvement, but not for Sarah's, Sarah's team. They've really done an excellent job of making sure everyone feels comfortable, um, eliminating the fear, and making sure everyone as, an, as a volunteer feels empowered to help these victims. Thank you for saying that, Stephanie. And to loop back to your original question, Rena, um, we do provide regular CLE training on the, you know, the legal needs of, of victims of human trafficking and what that looks like. Um, I and other um, uh, Chris Thompson here at the firm co-leads the project with me, and we both regularly provide kind of technical assistance on matters. But as I mentioned before, we also have wonderful co-counsel partners in the community. Um, the legal needs of trafficking victims very often involves. Um, sort of quasi-criminal law um, expertise and uh, family law expertise with both areas um, we do not have expertise in, but due to those partnerships, we are forever calling those attorneys who, who either you know, assist us and take the matter, co-counsel with us, or are just available to answer our questions. 
I want to build on Stephanie's great point about taking good care of your team and your pro bono lawyers and staff that are helping. And I don't know if this has come up, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about in the last year or two. And it, it could definitely have application for survivors of human trafficking. Have you had to or do you provide assistance with psychological or self-care mm-hmm. for the pro bono lawyers? That This is tough stuff, right? These clients have been through extremely traumatic experiences. And that can be hard, obviously, for the clients, but also for the pro bono lawyers who, you know, internalize their clients' experience and develop, you know, vicarious trauma or other issues. Have you had to sort of be sensitive to that or think about that at all? I will say, um, in my experience with the human trafficking work, I think that the reward and Again, giving a, a victim a voice and, and helping he or she in um, such an important time um, as they recover from that experience has been so empowering that I personally, um, that's self-care in itself to me, um, is to be able to, to provide this, this such so important, um, this need and this assistance um, for victims. So I haven't myself identified, uh, you know, a need and, and haven't identified one with any of the volunteers on our project. Um, as Stephanie had mentioned, these, you sort of don't know where the case is going to go, but eight times out of 10, it ends up being a very, you know, sort of short period of time, um, uh, a, a one particular task um, that helps with with whatever the legal request was. So sometimes it it, it doesn't um, have that sort of emotional burden that you suspect it may because it was actually, again, very short in time and a manageable task in order to assist the victim. That's, of course, not always the case, but um, I think a few attorneys have been pleasantly surprised at um, the little time that was required to accomplish the goal for the client. And I'll uh, I'll build on that, Sarah. At the um, when we first started out with the project, we were working with a safe house that um, required PTSD training, which I thought was really valuable. Um, we haven't done it recently, but it was sort of on the front end rather than the back end of preparing um, our attorneys, a few volunteers that were actually going to go to a safe house with some of these victims. It was an an intense training. I did not sit in on it, but Sarah did. It was uh, I think four hours of of talking about PTSD, and and uh, I know that they had even talked to, you know, certain fragrances might might set off a victim, um, hugging a victim might set them off, and really making sure that the volunteer was prepared to work with um, these clients. I think Sarah can, can share that when they went to the safe house, they, they had a wholly different interaction than what they were expecting after that training, but it was good to have that that under their belt before they went in. Absolutely. I, I often tell people that the PTSD training was probably the most um, one of the most enlightening professional experiences I've ever had. Yes, we are we are counselors, but we are not counselors and don't have a great understanding of um, trauma and anxiety and um, sort of the effect of PTSD on the brain. Two things that I um, got out of that training that I still carry with me today, you know, in most of my representations, is that um, individuals who have experienced PTSD may not think in a linear fashion. And one of the first things that we do as lawyers when we meet with a new client is we say, tell us what happened from, from A to Z and what day did that happen? And then what happened next? We can't do that with a victim of human trafficking who's experienced PTSD. They might not be able to recall facts 
um, as accurately in that particular time, um, chronologically. And so this type of work does require setting aside more time to build the trust and, and time to sort of allow those, those memories and those thoughts and um, his or her goals to, to, to come out um, in order to proceed with effective representation. Those are great points. I mean, for the most part, we are lawyers, not social workers. So these these trainings help us build the necessary sensitivities to be better lawyers. So they're great points. And I think better lawyers for our pro bono clients, but also across the board. I mean, I I think those are just value adds uh, in all of our delivery of services. Um, Since you've had the project up and running, what are what have been some of your lessons learned? to be mindful of the challenges with this type of work. Um, you know, we've focused a lot about how, how this is a much needed area of pro bono legal work and how personally rewarding it is and how supportive the community is, the bar is, and our service provider partners. But to know that there are distinct challenges in representing um, survivors of human trafficking. We've already touched a number of times on on the PTSD and other psychological trauma that can make representation challenging. Um, Also, this category of of clients can often um, have a lack of trust in law enforcement and the justice system. So that takes a long time to hopefully inspire that trust not only in the system, but in you, so that you can effectively represent their interests. Um, as I'd mentioned before, the, the challenge of issue spotting. Um, you know, the, these clients might not be able to, you know, very clearly articulate what their legal need is, and, and so you need to um, put on your lawyer hat and do that in a, in a most compassionate and sensitive way. Um, but some of the other challenges are the mobility of survivors. We, um, just by the nature of human trafficking, there, there certainly doesn't have to be, you know, um, sort of a, a mobility of, of the victim for it to be trafficking, but often there is moving from city to city or state to state, um, which can mean sometimes attorney-client representations are prematurely terminated because the victim is no longer in communication with her lawyer. Um, and those that I say that that's challenging because because it's heartbreaking really when you've um, you know invested in a client and um, really care about the result of your work and then the relationship is prematurely terminated um, and probably the greatest challenge that I've found um, but also the greatest reward is representing minor victims of trafficking. Um, many of our clients are children and um, from an ethics standpoint, um, it, it can be challenging to know um, you know when you can take her her her. Um, expressed interest, um, how you represent her without consulting the parents, without getting the consent of the parents. There are thorny ethical issues involved in representing children, but it is far outweighed by um, the reward in in helping a young person um, survive and move on and be empowered from that experience. Sarah, I I want to chime in. I think it's important to to note that most of our human trafficking clients are domestic victims. Um, One of the lessons learned for me is is to stop assuming. So at the start of this project, I assumed that we would do immigration work. We assumed we'd see prostitution charges. We assumed we'd be doing domestic violence protective orders all largely not true, you know, and, and we, we allow this, this program to build organically. But I do think it's important to note that our client base doesn't have um, 
you can't predict who's going to walk through those doors. However, we do um, largely focus on domestic victims, um, just given what we see from our, our, our service providers. I have no doubt that you have fired up and inspired listeners to now get involved in providing pro bono services for survivors of human trafficking. What advice do you have to people who live in communities where they don't have an existing pro bono effort, uh, like you, several years ago? Where should they start? Who should they contact? What tips do you have Uh, for them? That's a a great question. Um, Reaching out to community partners that may intersect with victims. As I mentioned, you know, that being law enforcement, federal and local law enforcement, the schools, um, the court system, service providers that, you know, there's a lot of intersection between other um, victimization such as domestic violence. So um, service providers that support victims of domestic violence would be a great um, relationship to build um, to get the word out that, um, that a lawyer or a law firm would like to provide legal services to victims of human trafficking. So developing those relationships, identifying the areas of expertise at the firm where the lawyers could be competent, but then also identifying the you know, competence and expertise of outside lawyers um, who could help when those needs come up. Yeah, I would also add that you know, Sarah and Sally started this at, at a perfect time. It was it, it just all lined up perfectly. But previous to that, this community had been talking about a human trafficking pro bono project for years. I can remember being at the bar and a uh, a group of people coming in, and it just wasn't getting off the ground. And I credit Sarah and Sally for just saying, "Let's just take the first case to to getting things rolling." Right? And and I think sometimes we want to have it all perfect and all tied up, and we know what we want to we're wa- walking into. But it was really Sarah and Sally saying let's just go for it. And and once she took the first case, as, as we know now, one case led to two, two led to 10, and so on and so forth. And, and I'll add to that, that there is, there's so many um, lawyers and organizations across the country that do this work and are so willing to help and get more lawyers and other service providers involved. So to certainly access um, those organizations so that no one has to reinvent the wheel and we can sort of share our successes and challenges. Mm-hmm. Lots of great tips. Thank you. Stephanie, Sarah, could you each share one or more meaningful pro bono stories? It could relate to your trafficking project or something else that the firm's been involved in that, for whatever reason, has stuck with you that you find meaningful? I'll let Sarah speak to her. She's okay. some good ones. Um, I One um, I'll say set of clients comes to mind. Um, we have represented a number of victims in a labor trafficking case, and it was one of the first um, cases that we took on. Um, These victims needed assistance in the uh, prosecution of the trafficker, um, in preparing their victim impact statements and in seeking restitution, but mostly in obtaining T visas so they could stay in the country. that relationship has now been going on for three years. Um, we obtained the T visa for them, um, are now in the process of turning that T visa into a green card because um, they want to stay. Um, these clients have become truly friends of the firm. Um, and I will say that Stephanie, I'll give her credit, uh, had the fabulous idea. One of these clients is a um, 
is a very talented musician, and she performed at a firm event recently, which um, was just a great testament to the commitment that Moore and Van Allen makes in its clients, that we really developed a relationship beyond the legal services. Um, those clients are now building families and careers, and they want to stay in America, and that has been so heartwarming to me that despite their experience of being trafficked, they have um, such faith in, in the opportunities in America and are, are staying so closely connected with us um, and have built that friendship. And I'm just, I, I, on behalf of the project, I'm so proud of the work um, that we've done for them. I will share one from a veteran's case. This was one of my early pro bono um, stories that came in, but it was um, the, the, the leader of our litigation team was he works with veterans, and he had met a gentleman who needed help with disability um, through the VA. The client had tried to um, go it alone and, and just simply wasn't getting anywhere, and, and it was over the course of 10 years. It was a 10-year investment. Um, and the client ultimately got 100% disability with back pay from the VA. And this was a, a seasoned gentleman that um, he would call every now and then to check in on his case. And one day he called just absolutely sobbing, and, and, and he, the, the, the attorney could not understand him, and he was trying to communicate that it had finally happened after so many declines, after so many appeals. And to hear the story of our litigation team and the various uh, areas of research they had to do, just, just things you didn't think you would be researching in your litigation practice, but they had to go back to the well to try to find more evidence um, to build this gentleman's case because they knew they had something. It was, it's really remarkable. Can I hear another? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Um, I tell this story because I hope it will inspire attorneys to get involved in this pro bono area um, who may fear that it would you know, take a lot of time or be very involved or require some expertise. Um, we, uh, a, a victim of trafficking who had um, recently testified in a, a, a case here in Charlotte, had asked for our assistance because while she was serving as a victim witness in the trial against the trafficker here, um, she had missed uh, a hearing in her home state um, for a related criminal charge. Um, she called because she had an outstanding warrant for missing that hearing. And that bothered her so much because she was trying so hard to get a job. And she said the only thing that was getting in the way was um, the potential employers doing a, a background check and seeing that outstanding warrant. And this had been bothering her for many, many, many months. And she said, is there anything you can do to help? Rena, we made one phone call to the prosecutor's office in that home state. And within 24 hours, the warrant was struck and so was the underlying charge. When I relayed that to the victim client, she said, well, you must be an angel. How did you do that so quickly? And so I share that story to say, not always and not often, but sometimes this work can be so easy and so quick and have a tremendous impact on the life of someone who needs it so much. Boom. Thank you for sharing. This is this has been <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. This has been such a fun, informative and inspiring chat. Let let's end with this, although that would have been a perfect ending. But let let's one more. One more. The encore, okay? The encore. Who are your pro bono and access to justice role models? Here at Moore and Van Allen, um, there has always been a culture of public service. Um, service in the community, both by way of nonprofit board service, um, 
grassroots, um, you know, community movements, um, pro bono representation of victims of, of not only trafficking but um, representation of individuals in so many so many areas of need that Stephanie had outlined before. Um, the leadership at the farm, those that have been here for a number of years and doing this work and making it such a priority, while um, still having such commendable um, paying practices, they're all my role model. Um, the, again, they, they've created a culture at the firm that really inspires and supports attorneys and staff at all levels um, to get involved in this work. And I will also say that Stephanie is, uh, is a role model for me and that she has devoted her career in doing this. And when I, when I was too nervous to, uh, to get this going and didn't know where it would go, she gave me the confidence and support to do that. So I'm grateful to her as a role model as well. You're sweet, Sarah. Thank you. I don't usually answer my own question, but I want to shout out to uh, to George Hanna at, at yes. Morin Van Allen, who yes. has been a tremendous friend of PBI. He has been a leader in Charlotte for a long time in North Carolina, sort of at large. He's done amazing work. So please send our regards to him. We we think of him a lot. Um, Stephanie, <laughs> got an answer? I also wanted to um, mention George Hanna. George has been at the helm of our, our ship here for a long time, and he continues to stay active within um, so many areas and an access to justice commission here in North Carolina, continues to take ca- uh, cases for our housing rights project. And he was one of the founders of our public service committee here, um, pushing for the involvement in the pro bono institute. So we owe a lot to George. And um, as, as we are talking right now, I just got an email for conversations with Santa that's happening this where George dresses up as Santa and invites all of the children um, from our colleagues here at Morton Van Allen. He gives them a, a nice little holiday surprise. And so he's still at it down here in North Carolina, spreading joy and, and really putting a smile on people's face. Fantastic. Well, Sarah and Stephanie, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rena. An enthusiastic thank you to Sarah and Stephanie for joining us today. To learn more about us and our work, visit our website at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.